0: of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Now, I wanted to give you guys a quick update on the podcast. Since I am a one-woman show from start to post, and I'm working with a desktop that is about 10 years old, and using free editing software that I'm hearing feedback from you guys is getting wonky when it comes to the background music, which I do apologize for. And I'm also now beginning to hear the hard drive make the noise. You know, the noise. So I'm going to have to make some investments very soon to be able to keep the podcasts coming. If you would like to ensure that I can get that done with no breaks in posting, as well as me possibly dabbling into some visual things for you guys as well, then consider becoming a patron and donating to the fund. Or just spread the word, whatever you can do. Thanks so much. Now let's continue. This week's podcast will be on Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Their murders are referred to as the Moore's Murders. Now Brady was born in 1938 and Hindley in 1942. So we'll take a peek at what was going on in the world around between those years. In 1938, the world famous psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud arrived in London, having fled from Vienna, Austria. The king at the time was King George VI, who is actually the current Queen of England's father, Queen Elizabeth. Also, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., President Kennedy's father, was appointed as the United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom. The British naval base at Singapore began operations. Also, Chamberlain made a speech in the House of Commons, saying the government, quote, emphatically disapproved of the Nazi German Anschluss, or joining in Austria two days before his speech. But that, quote, Nothing could have prevented this action by Germany unless we and others with us had been prepared to use force to prevent it. Gas masks were issued to the entire civilian population. Muslims in London protested H. G. Wells's A Short History of the World because they believed a part of the writing was disrespectful to their religion. York Castle Museum opened in 1938, as well as the Glasgow Empire Exhibition. The Children's Zoo at London Zoo was opened by Robert and Ted Kennedy, two of Joseph Kennedy's sons. I suppose John wasn't there in attendance. Also, the Beano comic went on sale for the first time, which featured the character Lord Snooty. Now in 1942, we have a rapidly changing atmosphere. Early that year, Japanese forces started attacking the Philippines, and after just seven days, what was thought to be an impossible battle, Singapore finally surrendered. Winston Churchill himself said it was the quote, worst disaster and the largest capitulation Unquote, in British history. Thousands upon thousands of British troops were taken prisoners of war. After this, Japan started aircraft attacks on northern Australia and 240 people were killed. Then the Dutch East Indies surrendered unconditionally to Japanese forces. Germany started an all-out aerial assault on Malta. The German army finally reached the banks of the River Volga in Stalingrad, and heavy fighting between the Russians and the Germans stopped the German advancement. The future and current Queen of England, then the Princess, registered for war service. War World II was in full throttle, and believe it or not, soap had to be rationed out in England, and so did milk. The Oxford Committee for Famine Relief was founded. The Statute of Westminster Adoption Act, passed by the Parliament of Australia, formalized Australian autonomy from the United Kingdom. While limited television was able to broadcast in the United States, all broadcasting stopped completely during this time in England until June 7th 1946 but what is also very important was that this is the year that Stephen Hawking was born bless him so was Mick Fleetwood the drummer for Fleetwood Mac and as far as the cost of living which didn't vary very much between their birth years here is some info the average cost of a house was 530 pounds and the average yearly salary was about 185 pounds a new car on average was 320 pounds and a liter of fuel was two pence a loaf of bread was also just two pence so this was the atmosphere that they were born into and I do want to stress that it was World War II Ian Duncan Stewart was born on January second, 1938, making him a Capricorn in Glasgow, Scotland. His mother's name was Margaret Stewart, but she went by the name Peggy. Now, Ian was born as what they called an illegitimate child, not knowing who his biological father was, and as far as I could find, the then 28-year-old Peggy never specifically stated who the father actually was. The only thing she ever said was that he was a journalist or a reporter who died a few months before Ian was born. She was a waitress, living in the slums of Glasgow, working as much as she could to support herself and her baby. But she was forced to leave Ian alone, even in his infancy, for short periods of time because she could not afford babysitting. And with the pressures of single motherhood, Peggy had no other choice but to leave him when he was just four months old with a foster family in Glasgow and she visited him on weekends for years. But she never told him who she actually was. Now, this lovely couple who raised him took excellent care of him. He was never mistreated or neglected in any form or fashion. The couple loved him dearly, and yet he was a lonely, secretive, difficult young child with insane temper tantrums where he would bang his head on the floor When he started elementary school, his teachers commented on how very bright he was, but he did not seem to want to put forth the effort for the high marks. They knew he completely understood the teachings. Another boy who knew Ian back in the day said that Ian carried a pocket knife with him everywhere, and not just for, hey, I might need this kind of situation and when ian was nine years old the family decided to go to the moors of loch lamond ian had always been in a very large city with buildings and roads that were quite frankly left in disrepair due to the war you know everywhere you look from side to side buildings and all of that so when he climbed up on a steep slope and looked out at the vastness of the area below him He was completely spellbound. He later stated this was a turning point in his young life, that he felt supremely superior to all other humans who were just, quote, maggots. It was a near religious experience for him. Though already a disturbed child, this changed things for the worst. At some point, he started abusing animals, First, he stoned dogs, and then he decapitated rabbits, and he burned cats alive. And all of this started at just 10 years old. However, when his family got a puppy, he loved that dog beyond measure. His foster parents knew he wasn't, let's say, quite right, but they refused to give up on him. Then, at 12 years old, Ian's birth mother, Peggy, stopped coming completely. You see, she left and moved to Manchester with her new husband, Patrick Brady. Soon after, he began stealing, much to the dismay of his law-abiding foster parents, and he was often caught. Ian began displaying a sadistic side, and his temper grew worse. He would bang his head against the wall in anger. He would get into fights with other kids at school and found himself in juvenile court on occasion for petty crimes. Ian absolutely loved horror movies and would go to the theater and watch the same ones over and over. Some even nicknamed him Dracula. He was also popular with the ladies, having several girlfriends in his youth, and it wasn't just the girls either. Ian claimed to have always been bisexual and would bring in other girls or boys into sexual situations with his girlfriends. A significant turning point in Ian's younger years was when the family dog died. He later stated that he walked out of the house completely beside himself with grief and knew right then and there, even though he had prayed for the dog to be healthy. His prayers were not answered that there was no God. He said that he was quote, reborn. In 1951, he was charged with housebreaking and theft. He was then sent to live with his mother down in Manchester. Now, Peggy had married a man named Patrick Brady and Ian took his stepfather's last name. But he continued his criminal activity, getting into trouble, and was sent to a youth detention center and school called a Borstel. He later stated that the time he spent there triggered his bitter hatred of society and his realization that nothing really mattered because he was going to die anyway so he might as well live his life according to his own code. It was also during this time that Ian began to become fascinated with Nazism and the writings of Nietzsche. He read Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's book, which spurred an obsession with the Fuhrer. He began buying records of Nazi speeches according to criminologist professor david wilson quote brady's fascination with nazism works on a number of different levels firstly there's this sense in which hitler obviously was the father to the masses and brady is without a father remember too that brady is somebody who has consistently liked to shock others it's a shocking thing to like the Nazis when you've lived through the war to say you support the people that you've actually been fighting against is quite a shocking thing to do, Unquote. And I agree with his statement, considering the war hadn't even been over for 10 years yet. I also think that Hitler talked about one race of people being far superior to others Sort of stating the Aryan race was better than everyone else, and Ian certainly thought that of himself as well. In 1953, he was yet again busted for breaking into people's houses and burglary. As he began high school, he found out another kid had turned him in for some rather bad behavior, so he cornered this kid, he beat him, and he sexually assaulted him not long after he quit school and started bouncing from menial job to menial job so since he had been living with his biological mother and his stepfather at first things were great but it didn't take long for ian to start getting into trouble again and he was arrested and put into a youth detention center where he was released at 19 years old so moving on to myra hindley who was born on July 23, 1942, making her Leo in Manchester, England. Her parents were Bob and Nellie Hindley. Bob was away for the first three years of her life due to the war, so Nellie lived with her mother to help her with the baby. When Bob returned from the war, Nellie's mother moved to a place just around the corner from the young parents. Myra's father began doing menial jobs to support his family, which displeased him greatly, and he also started drinking. A lot. And the heavy drinking led to him starting to smack his wife around, and Nellie fought back. She wasn't a timid little meek woman. She did her best to stand her ground. Sometimes the fighting got so intense that Myra's grandmother would have to step in and break them up, and Myra was witness to this. A year later, Bob and Nellie had another daughter, Maureen. At this point, the couple sent Myra to live with her grandmother, although she was still close with her family, especially her father, and desperately wanted his attention. But life with her grandmother was good. Her grandmother bought her all manner of toys and clothes, and she was completely catered to. As she began school, when the other kids would pick on her, as kids do, she was able to use the lessons that her father taught her from his days of being a boxer in the military, and she fought back then when she saw her father again she would tell him about the fights and how she had knocked a kid out completely and he told her he was proud of her so by all accounts she was a good student bright and sensible even though she was considered a tomboy she was considered pretty enough she came across as responsible so much that when she was 11 and 12 years old she was trusted to babysit for people and she was good at it which made her in high demand. At 13 years old she began taking communion lessons at her Catholic church. Her favorite pastime was reading and writing. In fact, it was pretty rare to see her without a book in her face. She used the novels to help her mentally escape the rather lower middle class life she was living in, but it was also about this time that her friends began to notice something about Myra. One friend stated, quote, she had no empathy for anybody else. If somebody hurt themselves, it wouldn't upset her, unquote. Fifteen year old Myra loved to swim and always went with her friend Michael. On one particular occasion, she had decided not to go. It was this particular occasion that Michael unfortunately drowned. Once Myra heard about his death, she was devastated and also felt somewhat responsible. She was the protector of all of her friendships, even with her younger sister and took it upon herself to watch over her loved ones. At her friend's funeral, his body was lying in the casket, and as Myra looked down at him, she was fascinated. It must have made some effect on Michael's mother, because she took his rosary beads from around her dead son's neck and gave them to Myra. After this, she quit school and converted to Roman Catholicism and became obsessed at sights such as a mutilated dog on the railroad tracks or some other animal bleeding to death, sights that would recoil anyone else away from. Once Myra was 17 years old, she got engaged to a local boy and at the same time, her sister Maureen also started seeing someone named David Smith. But David had the, you know, quote, bad boy reputation, with a helping of anger issues and just a sprinkle of time served under his belt. They all hung out together. Now keep David in your mind. Remember him. At some point by this time, Bob, Myra's father, had suffered a stroke and, And became completely dependent on someone for his care. However this did nothing to deter him from continuing to mistreat his wife. Myra saw this as a complete role reversal and began to beat and belittle her father the way he had always done to her mother. She also had been considering joining the military like her father had done But mostly she just moved from job to job, nothing sparking any interest. What she did start doing was bleaching her brown hair, a very light platinum blonde, and wearing it up teased and high on her head, as was the style of the times. This would be her signature style for the years to come. So that was their childhood. And we'll begin with Ian. Of course, it was noted everywhere that he was an illegitimate child, born out of wedlock and no father around. Now, I could go over how this could have affected him negatively in the following ways and so on, except it didn't. He went from being left alone for, again, short periods of time as an infant while his mother tried to work, Or she couldn't work at all because she couldn't afford the babysitting. She did the responsible thing and gave him to a couple that could care for him. And he was lucky enough to have been taken in by a good, loving family who loved him as their very own. They were good to him. There is zero evidence of any abuse or neglect experienced by Ian in his young life. He had every positive opportunity to flourish. And yet, from very early on, he displayed very troubling behaviors, such as temper tantrums, where he would bang his head on the floor, as an example. And as a very young child, barely in school, he carried a pocket knife, and not in a, you know, hey, this might be handy to have around kind of way. When the family decided to go visit Lac Le I love saying that. 9-year-old Ian, who had never seen such an expansive, you know, wide-open space before, and was in awe. But he later said that this changed his perspective on life, and now he was far superior and everyone else were maggots. So in the last podcast with Gary Ridgway, I talked about what childhood psychopathy looks like. But let's do a quick review. There are three components. They'll have an impulsive antisocial lifestyle, which Ian most certainly had. They show callous, arrogant, and deceitful interpersonal behavior, which he also definitely displayed, or have deficient affective responses, which he at least somewhat had as well. He demonstrated very little to no remorse for any of his actions. There is also the component of them having deficits in effective and interpersonal functioning, which we actually don't see in Ian yet, but as the story continues we will. He will also show us his very antisocial and aggressive behaviors soon. So his obsession with Nazism and the writings of Nietzsche also speak to his personality. We are all already intimately aware of what Hitler's philosophies were. Nietzsche had very radical thoughts about truth in favor of perspectivism. His genealogical critique of religion and Christian morality was something else. He spoke of the death of the idea of God and believed that organized religion as a whole would dissolve in a way. Basically, he said that, quote, the exemplary human being must craft his or her own identity through self-realization and do so without relying on anything transcending that life, such as God or a soul, We know that Ian became officially atheist after the family dog died, which was the only animal from childhood that he loved and cared for. At the same time, he was throwing cats from buildings many floors up and so on. He even in his youth was glib, felt superior to others, and didn't show the normal levels of empathy. Now, as for Myra, she was born into a very hostile situation. While the first three years were quiet and humble, once her father got back from the war, he just couldn't quite adjust back into quiet, normal civilian life easily. He began drinking heavily and physically abused his wife. But when she was barely older than a toddler, she was sent to live with her grandmother, a much, much easier living situation. She knew of the chaos going on at her parents' house, but she was quite spoiled at her grandmother's. And she, too, didn't seem to be abused or neglected in any way. Her father taught her how to fight, and she was quite skilled when it came to taking someone down were it warranted, but she had a fierce, protective streak in her for the people she loved. She was a highly sought-after babysitter. That shows empathy, a sense of belonging to her community. Her friends did note that she might see someone get hurt, for example, and not care, but from my own research and findings, I believe she did care about the welfare of others. When her friend drowned, she was beside herself with grief and felt a bit responsible for not having gone with him swimming that day. So I don't really think she was lacking in empathy. But I do think that his death was a sort of turning point for her because after that, she became curious and was most interested in death. She quit school, decided she wasn't going to just settle for some average life like most girls you know, which was to get married and start having children. Myra saw what that got her mother. So Ronald Kessler, the professor of health care policy at Harvard Medical School and the principal investigator of the U.S. National Comorbidity Survey states, quote, one of the long term effects of childhood adversity is that they create emotional scars that get reopened when people are exposed to traumas in adulthood, leading to adult PTSD. Unquote. So, even though she was raised primarily by her grandmother, they lived very, very close to her parents and she visited often, witnessing the domestic abuse. And while her father taught her how to fight and she was a tough girl, this set her up to be in an abusive relationship herself in the future or potentially. So let's get back into it. So Ian Brady reunited with his birth mother and taking his stepfather's last name attempted to get integrated into the local area. But he still alienated himself from society. He began reading books by the Marquis de Sade and adopted the belief that murder is, quote, necessary, never criminal, unquote. He even took up drinking red wine because beer wasn't sophisticated enough for his palate. It didn't take long before he was right back into committing crimes and was sent to Strange Ways Prison. While there, he learned how to be a bookkeeper as well as brew his own alcohol, thus quickly becoming an alcoholic. He was then released in 1957 and continued to be a loner and took on random jobs here and there until 1959, when he got a job as a clerk with Millward's Merchandising. It was a good job, and afforded him the opportunity to get into the latest in recording technology, even transferring Hitler's speeches onto vinyl records. He also loved photography and even put together a little darkroom for himself so that he could develop his own pictures. In 1961, Myra Hindley started working as a secretary at that same firm, and at first, Ian didn't even notice her. She, however, noticed him immediately. He seemed truly different than any other man she had ever met. She broke off the engagement with her boyfriend promptly. She paid very close attention to Ian, she studied him, and you know she loved his broody, romantic intelligence. She was impressed with his taste in literature. She flirted with him incessantly, but at first he hardly took notice of her. The seemingly emotionless young man, whose personality was off-putting to most people, but it drew Myra in like a magnet. But when he did show emotion on occasion, it was often during a rage when his work was not as it should be, and his temper was very much like her own father's. She wrote about her crush on him in her diary. She went to the local library, and she checked out a book on poetry, and was careful to be seen reading it by Ian. And that ploy worked. They went to the company Christmas party and danced together. They had a wonderful time. They shared their first kiss. Their first official date was to go see the movie, The Nuremberg Trials, which is about how the Nazi war criminals were put on trial to bring them to justice. But for Myra, she was infatuated. She started reading all of the books he suggested to her, and since Ian told her that there was no God, well, she simply stopped going to church. After she read the Marquis de Sade's book, he decided that he was going to take her virginity, but he was violent and brutal, hitting her and biting her over and over, and yet she stayed with him. Dressing and styling herself to be as pleasing to him as she could be. In fact, she willingly posed for highly pornographic photos for him. And he loved every minute of it. And after a while, he suggested that they should experience, quote, supreme pleasure together, which included finding people, raping them, and then murdering them. Now, Myra's father happened to like Ian, but her mother did not. The couple went on motorcycle rides and just spent a lot of time together. Ian gave her the pet name Hess, after Rudolf Hess, who was the leading member of the Nazi party. They discussed philosophy and shared a sense of superiority over all of society. They created their own little private world between just the two of them. And you see, this is how it all began. The once animal abuser, Ian, had Myra go with him to people's homes that were known animal abusers and they would beat that person up or destroy their property. They studied true crime together. Only Ian used the information to think through how not to get caught, such as abducting someone too close to their home or dumping bodies where they would be easily visible. Then they began to plan. Myra was to wear some form of a disguise. They were to kidnap a child. Then they would take the child to the Moors, rape that child, murder it, then bury it there. They thought it a perfect murder. They practiced out what they would do to perfect their plan. Myra bought two guns. She practiced driving a getaway car. Then, on July 12, 1963, 16-year-old Pauline Reed was walking along when Myra pulled up beside her in a minivan and talked the teen into getting in. Ian, of course, was following behind them on his motorcycle. Myra drove up to Saddleworth Moor, where Myra told Pauline she had lost a rather expensive glove and could she help her find it. And while they were looking around, Ian jumped on Pauline, wrestling her down and raping her. He then picked up a shovel and bludgeoned her in the head and cut her throat nearly completely through. He then buried her body. Then, on November 23, 1963, Ian and Myra saw 12-year-old John Kilbride at the market and offered to give him a ride home, telling him that his parents would be worried because he was out late as it was getting into the early evening hours. John agreed and got into the vehicle. Then, they used the same lost glove excuse to get him out to the moors. They stopped Ian took John with him while Myra waited in the car. Ian then sexually assaulted the youth and cut his throat, killing him. The summer of the next year, the couple stopped 12-year-old Keith Bennett and asked him if he would help them load some boxes into their vehicle, to which Keith agreed. Myra told him she would give him a lift home after. They drove out to the moor and Ian took Keith with him to look for this fake glove while again, Myra waited in the car. When Ian got back, he told Myra he had sexually assaulted the youth, then strangled him with a piece of string. Six months later, in December of 1964, they saw 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey and walked toward her dropping some groceries or shopping that they were carrying on purpose to stop the girl. They asked Leslie if she would help them get the goods into their car and then into their home, to which she agreed. Once they got her to their house, as they had eventually moved in together, they gagged her, undressed her, and forced her to pose for pictures before she was raped and killed. Myra has always said that she wasn't in the room when Leslie was being assaulted and killed. Ian swears she took part in the whole act. The next morning, the couple drove the body out to the moors and buried her naked with her clothes at her feet. Nearly a year later, in October of 1965, Myra drove Ian to the Manchester Central Railway Station where she waited in the car while Ian selected his next victim. A few minutes later, Ian returned with 17-year-old Edward Evans and introduced Myra as his sister. They drove home and hung out together for a while while drinking a bottle of wine. For some reason, Ian told Myra to go get her sister's husband, David Smith. Remember him? Had a bit of a bad boy reputation? Well, David and Ian had become fairly good friends over the years, and David had been quite impressed with Ian. So when Myra came to get him, he was more than happy to go. Once they got back, Myra told him to wait outside for a signal before he knocked. Once David got the signal, he knocked on the door, and Ian answered, asking if he had come for the quote, miniature wine bottles. Then told David to wait in the kitchen. This is David's statement. Quote, I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room, and I saw a young lad, He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible, hard blow. It sounded horrible." Ian then used an electrical cord to finish strangling the teen. Since Ian had injured his ankle during the row, the two men wrapped the body in a plastic tarp and put it in the couple's spare bedroom. David promised to return the next day with a baby stroller to put the body in to be able to take it to the moors, but once David got home, he became physically ill and he told his wife, Myra's little sister, What had just happened after he calmed down for a bit, he went out to a phone booth and called the police and waited for them to come pick him up at the booth. They then took him down to the police station where he told them everything that had happened. A police officer dressed up as a bread delivery man, knocked on the back door of Myra and Ian's house and asked if her husband was home. Myra said that she was not married, nor was there a man living there at all. So the policeman identified himself to her, and she did let him in, taking him straight to Ian, who was laying on the couch, nursing his ankle. When told about the report the police had received of a violent act happening in that house, Ian denied it. The detective asked to be let in the locked spare bedroom, but Myra said the key was at work. But... Ian told her to just give it over there they found the body in the room and arrested Ian on suspicion of murder his excuse he said quote Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand Unquote. Myra was not initially arrested but followed Ian to the police station taking their dog with her Five days after the murder, Myra was arrested for accessory to murder. A search of the house produced a book with the name John Kilbride on it, which made the police realize that the couple most likely had something to do with the disappearances of the other teens and children. Searches also led to the eventual discovery of suitcases in a locker at the train station and within those suitcases were photographs, negatives, nine pornographic pictures of Leslie and Downey with a scarf tied around her mouth, as well as a 13-minute audio tape of a girl screaming for help. The voice on the tape was identified as Leslie's because they made her mother listen to it. So as the police questioned their friends and neighbors, they were able to find Ian and Myra's favorite spots out on the moors, and as they searched the areas, they found an arm bone sticking out of the peat moss and realized they had found Leslie's body There were other photographs of the couple standing over very specific spots in the moors. You know, they were looking down at the ground. And it was determined that the photographs were also possible burial sites. And that's how they found John Kilbride's remains. Some of the photographs showed the couple's dog as a puppy. So the authorities put the dog under anesthesia to get some samples and try to test its age. To get a possible time frame. But unfortunately, the dog never recovered from the anesthesia. When Myra found out, she was inconsolable and accused them of murdering her dog, of all things. In a letter to her mother, she wrote, quote, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. "...the only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him." Both Ian and Myra were found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. They would each spend the rest of their lives going back and forth, changing their stories, implicating each other, and so on. Myra Hindley died on November 15, 2002, of a heart attack. Ian died on May 15, 2017 of heart failure. So I think we can all agree that in the case of Ian, he was most likely born to kill. Since we have zero information on his biological father, there's no way of seeing if any genetic predisposition was there, and we also know virtually nothing about his mother. It would be reasonable to assume that she was of at least average intelligence there was no indication of mental illness with regards to her and she was mature enough and loved her infant enough to realize she wasn't going to be able to give her baby the life he deserved so she made what I can imagine was an incredibly tough decision to give him up. And even then, she visited him as much as she could, and even brought him little gifts if she could at all afford it. This shows that she had empathy, thought of others before herself. So we really can't say whether or not any issues ran in his lineage, but it certainly didn't seem like he shared any trait of that sort with his mother. We also don't hear any reports of possible head trauma or seizures, Um, He did bang his head in frustration when he was little, but I don't think that he would have had the strength or the fortitude to do any serious damage at that young age. He was not abused, and he was not neglected by his adoptive or foster family. By all accounts, he had a great childhood, all things considered. I think it's safe to say that there was just something different about him from birth, Now, Myra, we don't know a lot about her family history either. Her grandmother seemed to be a caring and loving woman with no reports of mental health issues. Her father was a mean drunk, and her mother stayed with him anyway. This, of course, takes its toll on any child having to witness it. She loved her father, who also basically showed her how to let a man treat her. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that she wound up with someone like Ian. However, I think she did have a conscience and let her lust and want for Ian get in the way of that. But how could anyone team up with and help a child predator, pedophile, serial killer and not have something going on? But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at Serial Underscore Killing or YouTube under the same name as this podcast. You can visit my website at SerialKilling.Squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.